0: Hello and welcome to episode 87 of the CogniCast, a podcast by Cognitech Inc. about software and the people who create it. I'm your host, Craig Andera. Well today I think we'll just cover one thing, which is the Closure Conj Opportunity Grants. Um, You, yes you, are able to make a donation to this great program um, by visiting the website uh, at closure-conj.org, going to register, and then if you scroll down on that page you'll see a section where you can uh, donate. Um, so this is a program where we will collect money uh, that we will use to help people uh, attend the conge that would not otherwise be able to for financial reasons. And The, the programs is aimed primarily at uh, members of underrepresented groups. You can read more about that um, on the webpage I mentioned. Um, you can also email us at events at Cognitech.com if you uh, need more info. Uh, we're especially interested in hearing from companies. Um, that wanted to uh, donate, but um, individuals are more than welcome to do it as well, and again, you can do that by visiting the closure-conj.org website, going to register, and then scrolling down to where you see donations for the Opportunity Grant Program. Definitely encourage you to do that, um, and uh, also to work on your boss or other person of authority who can uh, maybe have your, uh, your company sponsor that. It's a great program. Um, I think, uh, you know, the uh, beneficiaries of that would be very grateful to you for for doing that and um you know just a good idea so i think uh that's all i want to mention today we will go ahead and go on to episode 87 of the Cognicast. ready to go
1: yeah let's do it all right let's do it
0: okay well then we'll kick it off um all right well welcome everybody this is the Cognicast. today is friday september 11th in the year 2015 and i'm very pleased to welcome today our guest a uh actually i i, I forgot to ask you as i usually do before the show um titles and everything so this is anthony markard did, first of all did i say your name right <laughs> yes that's great okay great then i'll then i'll ask you to introduce yourself uh, say who you are and then and, and let our listeners know who you are briefly
1: Sure. Um, so yeah, uh, my name's Anthony. Um, I guess I've been uh, in the Closure world for approaching four years or so now. Um, and my current position is a senior architect uh, inside uh, Walmart Labs. But in actuality, I'm kind of more of an engineering manager of a Closure team these days. Excellent.
0: Well, we are thrilled to have you and we will get more into your work uh, at Walmart and your work with Clojure and whatever else we can think of. Um, but before we do that, Uh, I want to make sure that we give you a chance to contribute your uh, piece of the little tradition we have at the beginning of the show where uh, we ask people to share some experience of something artistic, whatever that means to you. We just always feel like it's a nice way to get to know people a little bit more outside of the technology field. So I know that you had a chance to think of something. uh, What would you like to share with our
1: audience? So yeah, I've always been uh, into music. Music has been kind of my art form. I started playing uh, pipe organ when i was about 10 years old and kind of have been uh, playing drums and guitar and stuff uh, ever since then until i became a full-time programmer where i stopped playing uh, music at all um but <laughs> before that yeah music was my thing and uh i guess the the kind of one bit of art that i saw recently which really inspired me was an artist called Kaki king she's a guitarist who she specializes in strange guitars so she has kind of this I think it's a porcelain guitar she's got right now. Um, she's, she's you know used many others in the past and uh, on her latest tour she um, did this instrumental kind of album where she used projection mapping um, which is kind of like a it's a way of uh, projecting uh, video onto a specific surface you know which is uh, kind of you know mapped uh, in a 2d space. And so what she did is she uh, put up her guitar, she had it on stage when we came in and it was just her guitar on a stand uh, in the middle of the stage and it was pure white. And so we were all watching this going, all right, what's she gonna do? And she she walked in and uh, just sat down, didn't say a word, and started playing um, this you know really beautiful um, instrument to music with you know lots of finger tapping and, uh, and stuff like that. Um, and then all of a sudden the lights cut and the projection mapping started on the guitar itself. and then everything else in the room went blank. Uh, went black including her so all you saw was a projection mapped image uh on the actual surface of the guitar and the visuals in it were just mind-blowing like it was uh you know it started there were like plants growing out of the guitar there was um at one point the the white guitar turned into electric guitar and then into an acoustic guitar and it was really um a huge like uh sensory experience you know of just like audio and visual and um yeah just hugely uh inspiring yeah, it's cool. That sounds super cool.
0: <laughs> um, I'm curious. Was there any? I, I like it when the artists do um, visual elements in the in the show, you know. And that sounds like an amazing take on that. Was there any uh, linkage between like the music uh, she was playing and the visual imagery that were happening at any point? Like, was it timed or somehow thematically
1: related? Yes, it was. I'm not sure how she did it. I think it was all rehearsed, but there was uh, one point where she was uh, she was playing, and it was kind of. a... I think it was a water background on the guitar and she would kind of she does a lot of tapping on the actual guitar itself when she plays and so one thing she did was tap different places on the surface of the actual guitar like a like a drum Um, and then those resulted in kind of like water uh, droplets almost on that point so she was it was a very you know she was playing with the guitar the guitar was you know giving visual cues back to her um I, it looked like it was interactive, but I, I have to assume that it wasn't. <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah. I mean, as, of course, as an engineer, you're sitting there going, A, that's amazing, and B, now how did they do that? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> right. Interesting. Well, that's really, really cool, and I that's amazing, and I'm sure we could spend a lot more time talking about that. And I do want to get on to some of the things that we more typically talk about, uh, you know, namely closure and, and, and that type of work. However, I must stop and ask you about the pipe organ, because... Um, that just sounds like really, I don't know, I find it really, really interesting. Get, what, what brought you to that? What is that like? I mean, what's the coolest thing about playing the pipe organ, in your opinion, for example?
1: Oh, uh, the the brute noise that comes <laughs> out of it. It's, it's awesome. Yeah, I can imagine. <laughs> it was, uh, yeah, I was, um, when I was a kid, uh, yeah, I was, you know, learned pretty early. And I went to the one school in Australia that had a pipe organ. Uh, and actually it had two which was pretty ridiculous so like at that point I was you know decided yeah screw it I'm going to go and actually learn uh, how to play this thing and you know played it for many years and got kind of decent at it at the time and was invited to play at you know the school um, assembly and so it's up in the corner it's this huge box of a pipe organ when I I sat down and no one really knew I was there and so the uh, you know everyone walked in the assembly started uh, the headmaster said all right Let's um, let's get started, um, and then it was kind of a visual cue for me to start playing, and uh, I played this really kind of song that starts with a huge chord, uh, so I pulled out all the stops and just boom went for it, and the entire row of year seven students next to the pipe organ just like jumped up in their chairs. Because they were <laughs> so like, uh, it was a pretty unexpected turn of events. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. There's
0: nothing. Uh, there's nothing. I don't know. I still like it too, but I, I got to say there's something really awesome of being uh, young and being permitted to make like really a lot of noise. I think that's great. So I got to ask you one thing too, before we go on, because I just think this is so cool. So my understanding, and maybe this is completely made up, but I thought I remember reading somewhere that like a pipe organ, some of the frequencies are actually subsonic. Is that, is that something that you makes any sense to you?
1: That's true. Yeah. Um, you can, so I've never played a pipe organ that gets there hmm. but the, basically the, the pedals on the pipe organ uh, range from anywhere from an octave to even three octaves. And depending on the size of the pipes, uh, you know that relates to the frequency of the note. So uh, on the pipe organs that I've played, like I've always been able to distinguish the lowest uh, note, which is a low C. Hmm. but when you uh, there's one pipe organ I know of in Sydney uh, in Australia. Um, it's the the town hall pipe organ, and that one has, I think it's a sixty four foot uh, pipe for one of the lowest uh, pedal uh, registers. and that uh, I believe is below twenty hertz. Mm. So when it basically, uh, I heard that there's kind of a big note on the side of the organ. it may not be there anymore, but it says, it's like a warning on that stop. If you play this, uh, the whole building will shake. <laughs> and you won't be able to hear it. I think you can't hear anything uh, on that stop uh, below a G or something on that um, pedal. Huh. It's, it's pretty nuts. Huh. Yeah. That is crazy.
0: Well, I'm sure we could talk a lot more about that. It is a very interesting topic, but uh, there are other interesting things that we should talk about. I want to make sure we get to those. So, uh, so, so people might uh, be familiar with you. You gave a talk at... Closure West. I wasn't able to attend, but I did watch it online. I thought it was a really good talk. You talked a lot about how you your experience at Walmart organizing um, larger code bases. I forget what you said. Your code base is in the fifty thousand lines. I think is I think is what you said at the time.
1: Yeah, it's about fifty thousand lines, or um, I think we've got a, approaching a hundred and projects. Mm-hmm. Um, that's kind of like the the area that we're in. Yep.
0: Yeah. So that's that was definitely a great uh, talk. And anybody that hasn't seen it. Uh, so they should definitely watch it i think uh, it echoes a lot of the things that i've learned working on sort of similar sized projects um obviously we've both taken a lot from uh from Stuart Sierra's views on the on the system now, so i know that he did some work at Walmart on the system that you worked on e-receipts did you did the two of you uh get to work directly together
1: we did yeah um so when i first started at Walmart uh my so a really good friend of mine um Adam he joined the team as kind of the first uh, other closurist um, at the company um, and really made us like finally a team uh, more than just me. Um, and when he came in, he said, All right, if I'm going to come in and, uh, and work here, I want to make sure that we're doing closure right. And basically he said, uh, You can hire me if uh, we get some really smart uh, closure consultants in. Uh, wink wink nudge nudge to <laughs> text. Um so uh, I uh, talked through it with my boss and uh, we decided to go for it and um, we what we did originally was we got a uh, you know a closure consultant for three weeks to come in and just really tear apart our code base you know just come in and say hey you know what are we doing right what are we doing wrong um, you know basically like give us a, a kind of report on it so that we can go and you know be better at our craft as we go forward. And um, we were really lucky uh, that um, Stuart Sierra was available um, and he joined us for that first three week uh, engagement. And so uh, he basically did uh, such a good job that we wanted him uh, more. And so, yeah, we ended up working with Stuart Sierra for, I think it was a year and a half or so. And he was really like, you know, as we were getting more and more employees on, he was really driving a lot of our, um, our core, you know, architectural decisions, you know, ways to choose libraries, uh, all that kind of stuff. So I'm interested
0: uh, because I actually haven't talked to him about this too much. I'm interested to hear about that first three weeks. This is something that we get asked to do from time to time is to do a um, a shorter engagement. I mean, three weeks is a fairly short engagement for con- uh, for consulting compared to when we do like development, and it can be quite. I don't know what the word is. Like I think I think that there's a sense in which it's a little bit scary or risky or whatever to have to invite somebody to come in on the basis of them being better at some particular skill than you are and saying, hey, please, like, you know, rip this apart and and tell me what I'm doing wrong. So I'm curious about how that went and what the most interesting things you uh, got out of that were and, and just in general, like how that went down.
1: Yeah, I mean, we certainly weren't worried about having someone come in and rip our code base. I mean, so I guess put this in context. This was three, three years ago, I think now. And so I'd only been doing closure, like so. I think this happens to a lot of people when you start working uh, in closure yeah, at a, you know, and you can do it at a company. Um, yeah, we were. I was really fortunate um, to have a boss who was, you know, going to let me do it. And so when I first started, you know, like, I didn't have anyone else on the team. I didn't have any peers. I didn't have anyone that I could go and ask how I do things in closure. It was all based on books that I'd read, um, you know, talks that I'd seen online. And so I, I kind of knew that I wasn't. You know, doing it the best that I could. So I wasn't really worried about having someone come in. Um, it was kind of funny when Stuart did come in because uh, I think after the first day that he was there and he kind of had a, a brief look at our code base, he was like, you know this isn't this isn't so bad. You know mm-hmm. you, you know you guys are actually doing things um uh, pretty well here, and uh, I kind of you know looked at Adam and snarked because I was you know pretty pretty happy with that because this this was all my code. Adam had only no, just joined. Sure. And then uh, a week later that was not the case. <laughs> and, uh, so many uh, kind of problems um, with how we were doing things. So yeah, I certainly didn't have an issue with that at all with being told that our co- you know my code could be better. Mm-hmm. And so yeah, I think uh, you know what Stuart did is. Um, he basically uh, just went through uh, all of our code. He, he looked at things like you know our dependency graph, you know, like uh, basic kind of software architecture things. You know, are we pulling in too many dependencies? Um, uh, are, are the libraries that we're using really uh, the right ones? Things like, uh, I think we were still using a lot of weird state, like using atoms all over the place rather than trying to like minimize it down to a single atom in places. Um, this is before component. Um, so you know we had a lot of global state in our application, so he was able to really kind of like you know tug at that and you know tell us that we could do things a lot better there. So yeah, no, that that's kind of how it went.
0: So would you say, I mean, I know you talked about the managing state in your in your talk, and again, I thought it was a really good presentation of that material. Is that the thing that stands out to you from that time? as the oh, well, this is really something that we need to be doing differently, or was there another, number one lesson if you could pick one.
1: No, it was definitely state. Um and uh I think I'd been watching uh Stuart Sierra's reloaded talk as well. Um and I was <laughs> it was kind of hilarious. When uh Stuart came in I had watched that talk and I tried to replicate what he was talking about. And for everyone who hasn't seen that talk, um this is the one he gave at Closure West. It's gotta be two or three years ago. Yeah. Yeah, it's the first one he gave on the subject. Um, And he talked about the idea of, you know, instead of having all of your state in uh, one kind of var, in a namespace, you instead uh, kind of pass it through your application as a value. Um, And often this is, you know, you've got a function that normally takes one argument, you know, such as save something to a database, but now it takes two arguments, the first one is the context, you know, it has the database connection and all that kind of stuff, and then any other arguments that are required by the function to perform that. And I took this uh, in the literal sense, and created a uh, map called state (laughs) Mm. and the map uh, was essentially like if if anyone knows component it it builds up this system Um, you know it's a a giant map that has all of the different components in your system uh, including their own sub-dependencies at at lower levels of the map Um, whereas I just had a a giant map um, that was nested that had all of the components in the system and I would pass that to every single function in the program and then inside those functions I would say, get in state, Cassandra, port, you know, blah, and would, would pull out everything uh, from deep within that map. Um, so basically the big thing that I wasn't doing, that I should have been, was uh, I was passing the entire state map to every function in the program rather than pulling out the sub-components of that, of that map and passing them around. That was uh, one of the, the big kind of mistakes that, that we made. Um, and And then after that, Stuart worked with us to actually go through each of our libraries um, that we had, each of our learning and projects, and figure out ways that we could componentize them. And to this day, uh, we're still not finished with that. You know, there are still really old uh, libraries that have been around for uh, three years now, um, which we never got around to fully componentizing. But uh, we kind of got the core, you know, like all of the, the base kind of, you know, the database libraries and all that kind of stuff. We got all those out of the way uh, while he was there. Um, so, yeah, I think in terms of something that had the biggest impact on our code and code architecture, uh, I would definitely say that component has been the big one. I mean, this
0: implies, I think, that y- you have been in a position of being the first uh, closure developer within uh, the organization to being, you know, one of of several. I don't know how many you have right now, but but is is that a number you could say? Yeah, yeah, sure. We've we've got uh, ten closure engineers. Okay. now. so that's a significant team, and I can see actually why you say you know, that while nominally you're an architect and I suspect you're being modest, I imagine. Having talked to some people that worked with you, I think your technical influence is probably still quite strong. But why you say you're more of a development manager, because my personal rule of thumb is as soon as you have five people trying to do something, then you need one person whose job it is to make sure that they can keep doing that thing. So you've got <laughs> 10 people. But the, the point of what I'm getting at, driving at, is you've actually uh, had to bring people on. And I'm assuming that, you weren't able or, or didn't bring in people that were experienced, uh, like really experienced closure devs from the get-go. So
1: yeah, go ahead, yeah. Oh, sorry, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's been a mishmash. You know, so certainly so, like, for a long time, it was uh, myself and Adam. You know, we were like the, the core members of the team. Um, and then uh, I think once we reached a point where we we felt, you know, th- this closure thing, you know, was important, um, you know, the applications that we were building were, were very important to the business. Um, and we really needed uh, to basically remove the bus factor and and start creating a real team. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, it's been a, a mishmash of internal people who have come in from other teams and also uh, people coming from outside the organization with, with definitely varying levels of closure experience. And I think certainly, for the first few highs that we got, um, it was you know people who had come in from Python or Ruby or, or whatever. like I mean uh, Adam didn't have really any closure experience he he'd done some tutorials, he'd done some foreclosure stuff, but you know that was about it. So he was starting from pretty close to scratch. The way that we really worked that in was that um, was a lot of pair programming you know so we we paired pretty much eighty percent of the time for for a good few months there um and that's how we we both got you know up to speed because i was i I'd, I'd been doing closure for a year or so there but you know i mean as i mean i like to say in Clojure, it's like you can learn the language in like a week or two um but then to really start doing it right i mean i'm still not there you know we're still learning uh, the right ways to do things in closure um so i was still learning too mm-hmm. and then uh, yeah we had uh, other guys who come in like you know um one of the guys is a python guy um i mean he was uh, i'd say like 70% uh, learn learned of Clojure, and so like we had to teach a fair bit there as well. And then we've also had people come in from, uh, you know, we've got a Node.js engineer who transferred from another team in Walmart. And uh, But then apart from that, I think recently, um, we've really hit this point where there's a lot of good Clojure engineers out there. And really, our last kind of four hires, I'd say, have been, you know, people who have been using Clojure for at least a year or two. Uh, whether it's on side projects or whether it's like within their own companies. But, you know, now we're getting to a point where um, we can pretty much like go out and, and you know, go on a, a hiring round. And, you know, the candidates that we end up accepting um, happen to have been doing closure for at least a year or two. So that that's definitely a change I've seen in the last probably probably last year or so. Yeah.
0: So now I think a lot of people uh, don't know this uh... But you're not in uh, Arkansas, Bentonville, uh, which is what most people associate (laughs) with with Walmart. You're actually located in the Bay Area.
1: We are, yeah. um, So Walmart Labs uh, is based in the Bay Area, um, and it's kind of part of the larger uh, online part of Walmart, which is the uh, global e-commerce group. Um, And so, yeah, they've got offices here in San Bruno and Sunnyvale in the Bay Area. And uh, we, we do, our team particularly does a lot of trips to Bentonville because we integrate very closely with a lot of teams there. But the office that, that we have is here in the Bay Area, but everyone on our team, uh, we're, we're pretty much a remote team. Um, so out of the 10 engineers, uh, four are in the Bay Area. But even then, we're only in the office like a couple of days a week. Um, and then everyone else is completely remote, uh, you know, Portland, um, Philly, uh, Atlanta, like we're, we're kind of all over the place. Yeah.
0: Okay, well, that actually kind of answers the question I wanted to ask, um, which is given that you're in the Bay Area, do you think the upswing in or the increase in your ability to find experienced closure engineers is a function of where you're located? It sounds like not, since it seems like you're you're actually hiring from uh, places that aren't uh, Silicon Valley.
1: Yeah, I mean, it could. We could probably put more effort into um, trying to hire more within the Bay Area. But honestly, like we've really embraced the remote thing, and that's worked great for us. Because I think what happens, people... Don't realize this but well i think people know that there are great engineers everywhere you know throughout the world right they're not all in silicon valley but more importantly if you are in a city where there isn't a big closure presence i mean what are your options you know you can uh, try and find that you know it firm in in the area work there try and you know get closure into the organization or you can you know find a company that actually does remote work in closure and and we found that has been, like, one of the biggest benefits for us. You know, like, I'd say at least 80% of people who apply for positions here, like, they're remote, you know, and they don't plan to move to the Bay Area. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a bit of a no-brainer to me, like especially once you've uh, actually accepted remote working and you've optimized your entire team around it. You know, like you're all using uh something like Slack or Hipchat for your communication all the time. You avoid having, you know, actual face-to-face meetings. You try and put everything into these online areas and you really embrace remote working, then I think the the benefits are pretty huge. Yeah.
0: Yeah, we've certainly found that to be true as well. I mean, we it's kind of funny for us, I meaning Cognitech, um the switch to remote and the switch to closure were very tightly linked. I mean, this was 2010 when we started to to really move over and um you know, at that time especially it was it would have been I think impossible to assemble the team that we had with a requirement that the people that were on the team uh live in Durham. Now, obviously we have great I think great people that live in Durham and that's you know, living in Durham is not exclusive with being uh, someone we want to work with, but it certainly greatly expanded the pool of people that um, that we could consider working with. And I don't think we'd be the company that we are now if we had uh, limited ourselves to being local. Although I think, you know, your organization and ours are both seeing that the available pool of experience, uh, people with closure experience, is grown enough that I wonder what you think, whether it's become – does that translate it to being more viable to hiring locally if that's what your your team needs to be? Uh, I mean it depends where you live, I guess. Yeah, I suppose <laughs> you're right. Yeah, I guess you're right. I guess I'm asking you to speculate on uh, – <laughs> anyway, so there's um. So this is interesting because you know you were there at the beginning, and I'm, I'm kind of curious to hear a little bit more about this journey. I'm always interested to hear people about people's journeys, right? So like we've talked a little bit about you bringing it into Walmart, but did you – kind of come to closure before that and then you're like okay we got to have this at work or what was your what was your arc to closure before it started being adopted more at walmart
1: uh let's see i think i started getting interested in closure back in 2009 Hmm. it was definitely uh it was I, I've been looking at, at different languages you know quite a bit uh, I, I've been using Java at the time um, so it was you know very much kind of uh, tied to that platform and Scala was the first thing I, I got into was like a secondary language um, and loved it at the time like I mean it was uh, this is back in I think it was Java 1 five even and so like Scala was uh, was really amazing and uh, I wasn't even using a lot of the functional constructs at that point I hadn't really got to that point but you know was starting to see the benefits of, of other languages beyond uh, just Java. And, and I don't really have a... I mean, I started programming about 10 years ago and did Power Builder, which, yes, it was a thing. Wow, <laughs> I remember Power Builder. <laughs> that was okay. my first language. It was terrible. Wow, <laughs> that's amazing,
0: I have to say. Uh, I, you have my sympathy. Yeah, it did have SQL in the
1: language, which was pretty amazing. Yeah, um, so does Visual Basic these days, you know. Anyway, <laughs> go ahead. But beyond that, it had nothing. Um yeah, and so then I went to C++ and then to uh, Java. And um yeah, and the way I kind of like really got really got into closure was I had um like during the acquisition of our of my previous startup, which yeah, we, we my company was a kind of paper paperless receipts company um, that uh, my co-founder and I created. And then um, uh, long story short with that, we end up getting acquired by Walmart. And during that period, there was like three months of downtime during uh, the whole acquisition process there. And so during that point, I I was back in Australia, um, you know, couldn't work on either the old company or the new one. And so I decided to, you know, really start to get into Clojure. And this was kind of, uh, I guess, 2011 or so. And so I put, I was learning Scala and Clojure at the same time. I put them side by side and wrote a online card game uh, with both of them um, at the same time. Like I tried and try go like Scala one day and then Clojure the next day, and my idea was to see um, you know after three months which one really worked for me. And I found that at the beginning, like yeah, you know, Scala was so much more like Java. I was able to get started very quickly, um, and everything made a lot of sense. I was building class hierarchies and I was you know doing all the things that you'd probably do in Java but you know the language is so was so much more succinct and easy to use um, so at the start Scala was I was going much faster in Scala and then um, but I found that there was kind of an inflection point where um, as I learned more and more Clojure and started to really get how to think in Clojure a little bit more I found that uh, I was able to work faster in Clojure than I was in Scala and that, that really kind of after the three months, like I was, I was flying in Closure. Like in in Scala, I was still dealing with the, the old compile times, you know. Uh, whereas in Closure, I was using a REPL, um, so like the development process was faster. Uh, I didn't have to worry about you know uh, types when I was you know like building type hierarchies and stuff. Everything was just maps. So, yeah, I really uh, enjoyed. You know, realized at that point that you know Closure was the language that I wanted to get into. So that that's kind of when I when I you know started getting into Closure, and then. At Walmart, so back in the startup, I'd done that in Java because what you don't want to be doing in a startup is uh, both trying to solve problems for your customers um, and learning new language. You know, th- those two things shouldn't go together. Mm. Um, you know, it's, it's kind of like the ultimate yak shave, really. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I decided, you know, not to do that and stuck with my guns and just had like a, a vanilla Java application on Juice, Hibernate, you know, all the usual um, things in the Java world. But when I got into Walmart, I was like, all right, cool. Um, I'm here for, you know, for the long haul. Like, you know, we've got a huge, like trying to roll out our application, our paperless receipts application at Walmart would, you know, that was a huge undertaking. And, you know, we, we certainly the business wanted to see it done quickly, but ultimately it was a, a chance for me to kind of step, take a step back, re-architect, um, you know, and come up with a kind of better solution. So <laughs> I thought it's kind of a personal uh, thing that I did, but I, I thought, screw it, I want to do closure." And so I went up to my boss and I said, hey, uh, can I do this? And he is he's an incredibly good boss. His name's uh, Dion Almer, and uh, he was the engineering manager of us at the time. And uh, he said, um, if you want to support it and it's going to keep you at the company, then go for it. <laughs> uh, and I think that was a very smart thing of him to say because it uh, meant that immediately I had to take responsibility for it. You know, if I was going to do this, then I had to make sure that – I was going to build a team and that i was going to um you know support it during downtime and i had to you know i couldn't just build a java application at that point and like you know send it to you know use all the existing libraries within the company and so on like i had to start from scratch and and own everything it's very smart move him to do that because because i think he knew that i would i was just one of those guys who would kind of go home and and just work on closure nonstop, and that's what i did in in, during my first six months or so in, in walmart so yeah uh he was really instrumental in kind of uh, giving me the confidence to to start it. Even then, it was pretty rocky. Like I remember trying to get other people into closure in the organisation, and that just didn't work. Um, I had this. I organised like an hour to get like all of these kind of people that I had a lot of respect for like in the same room and try and you know espouse the benefits of closure. And uh, basically screwed up and showed the macro expansion straight away. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Okay. You just see, like everyone being like, because uh. <laughs> of course, I like it didn't work. And, you know, I was trying to call macro expand, but forgot like the um, quote. quote before the expression. It, yeah, yeah. Uh, it was it was bad. But um, so I struggled in getting other people in the organization into closure. But um, certainly uh, the organization supported me in, in pushing it out there. So, yeah, that, that's kind of how it got in. And then uh, I think it, it it was really nice having a Java application that was already modularized because I could take each of the, the sub-libraries in the uh, existing application that we wrote back in the startup and just one by one convert them to Clojure, which was a really nice path. Um, it was certainly, it meant that, you know, I, I still had a lot of state uh, back in the old Java application, so um, it wasn't like a, a perfect kind of transformation. I still had a lot of, like, you know, do-syncs and atoms kind of, you know, in the uh, closure code. But, you know, in the first iteration of that, you know, I was able to replace one by one of the libraries. And before long, I realized, oh, I've actually got a full closure application. There was a little bit of Java sprinkled here and there, but it was mostly closure. So I kind of put it into, uh, well, production. It wasn't really production. It was like a, you know, test in a, in a store or two. But um, at that point, yeah, it, uh, it worked and kind of took it from there. Uh,
0: yeah. Other than choosing macro expand as your kind of sample (laughs) do you have any any regrets or any any things that you would do differently as part of that path because it sounds like i I mean based on your tone and the way you tell the story i it, it seems like you'd consider it a successful venture
1: yeah i mean uh i think it's been hugely successful i think um I mean, our team has, you know, strong engineers, and that's, I think, really at the core of, of you know, why we why we excel and why why we can build, you know, good applications relatively quickly. But, I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I think the biggest benefit of introducing Clojure has just been the fun factor. Like mm. I talk about this a lot when people say, like, why are you using Clojure? And there's a lot of good reasons you can mention. You can say, oh, you know, it, it does concurrency very well, it's immutable, it's functional, you know, blah, 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 like, like 12 superpowers of closure, kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But uh, the one that I always put at the highest is just fun. You know, like I, I have a tremendous amount of fun just, you know, coding at REPL in REPL-driven development, you know, playing around with uh, APIs in the company, you know, exploring them, trying things. I, I think a lot of people in the closure find this, but I mean, it's just fun to code in. So, uh, and I think that that's important for many reasons because you don't want to come into work and kind of be fighting a language the whole time. You know, like have being forced to use IDEs to get around, you know, stupidity and verbosity in the language or, you know, being told that the bug that you introduced is is not because you, you know, mistyped something, but because uh, the language has a quirk, you know, like having a really well-designed language uh, and especially one that's as interactive as Clojure, means that, you know, you can kind of get out of those weeds and everything becomes more about problem solving and just, you know, getting back to the basics of computer science. And that's that's what I really like. And I think also just the fun factor is important because, you know, we are software engineers and this is what we do every day. Yeah, you should choose something that's practical and it's going to solve the problem. But if you can choose something that's fun, like you, you're going to be at that job for longer. You're going to be uh, on that project for longer. Like, you know, you won't get as burnt out because you're just going to be having a lot more fun. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, retention is a big deal, especially if um, if your strategy as a as an organization is to attract and main and uh, retain people at 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 a high end of the skill spectrum, which it sounds like your philosophy is similar to ours, which is that you know you you get a lot more done with with really good people than you do with <laughs> with people that aren't i mean you know it's, Makes it's sense to me. <laughs> i know I know it seems a little silly, but you know there's there's other complicating factors there too, and I think other people choose different strategies but if you if you make that assumption then then I think you're absolutely right you can't ignore like how pleasant it is to work in the environment using the tools, the things that, you know, we're engineers. Like the, if you're going to hire an engineer on the basis of them being, you know, um, above average competent by some number of standard deviations, then they're very likely the sort of person that cares about that sort of thing, like languages, right? So, And none of this is specific to closure. I think it would be true, you know, for people working in the Haskell space or, or wherever, Right, but like that that having in an environment that's like this is cool is actually super important. I think you're right. I think you've hit it right on. Yeah. Um, but I want to come back to the question <laughs> because I asked you if you have any, any regrets and you told me how that's awesome right. it is. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so so I, you know, what what would you change if anything? Uh um trying to think. I tried getting more people from within the organization into the language. Um, and I think at some points like I, I forced it um, at, well, no, I didn't really force it too much, but I think I had unrealistic expectations sometimes. I think um you know you can uh, you know talk about how awesome closure is and and to some respect, uh, some people will get excited about it. but if you try and bring people in who aren't you know kind of on that wavelength you know of of kind of like a newer language and newer ways of thinking, um people who are kind of you know stuck in older mentalities. Um, like the fact is, I think trying to get someone like that into closure is just really hard, mm-hmm. um, and you, you actually risk like you know expecting too much of someone, and then yeah, it just sometimes just doesn't work out the best. So I think we haven't done that much. Like there's only been a couple of people who um, kind of it, it didn't work out uh, on on internal transfers, um, but I think it it is something like to be aware of that. You know, closure is a cutting edge language. I think in many respects, you need some people who are are thinking differently to most engineers who are used to very imperative and object-oriented ways of thinking. Um, so I think, yeah, the learning curve is is hard. Yeah, that's not li- really a regret though. Um, well, I think I think there's an element there of understanding your
0: organization and understanding whether it's time to bring uh, Muhammad to the mountain or the mountain to Muhammad, if you will, right? Because it sounds like some. I, I think there's a sense in which we all kind of. And this is why I asked you about have to find our path to closure, and there's a there's timing involved, right? you know 3 years from now person a might be ready but they might not be ready right now but if you're trying to introduce it in an organization that person's at wherever they're at and and if you go out into the world well you can just filter it right down to the people that are already at a point where they're looking to to do those things totally
1: yep. yeah 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 i'm trying to think of other uh, other kind of things that we've done which we we could do better like particularly with closure I think one thing that we did early on, which perhaps was a, a mistake, was um, we for our deployment pipeline, we also uh, went down a closure road very early. You know, so I guess like you know, if you have a single application, you can just deploy it as a jar file on a machine, right, and run it with, uh, you know, JSVC or something. But um, you know, we, we kind of went all the way, and um, yeah, we were using Palette um, pretty early on. Mm. Um, and uh, for anyone who's used Palette. Um, I mean, it's it's pretty awesome what, what those guys created um, early on. I mean, it's basically, it's, it attacks in one way the same problem as Ansible or Chef or um, any of those kind of things. But it also uh, attacks the problem of how to um, think about your infrastructure as code in, in a really core way where, you know, you can have like a specification of all the machines in your system rather than just how to install software on them. Um, and take advantage of, uh, I think it uses an in internal library, it's like cloud. JClouds, that's it. Yeah, yeah. And so uses JClouds so that you can actually integrate with all of the cloud providers out there. Um, so you can, you know, move your infrastructure from, you know, Amazon to Rackspace, um, and it'll just, you know, create all the machines with the right network settings and the right uh, CPU and so on. Um, so it's pretty awesome. But it's it was also pretty difficult to use um, back then. You know, like the documentation wasn't necessarily there. Um, you really had to like dive into the code base to really understand it more. So I think we we dove down that there pretty early. And as a result, it's really all in my mind. And everyone else who joins the team is like, how do we use this thing? And I'm like, well, you just kind of have to go and read the code. Like, it's, mm-hmm. uh, Whereas if you do use more of a standard thing, uh, like, you know, like Chef or Ansible or something like that, the documentation's there. It's much clearer on how to use it. And we're going back and forth on this all the time. You know, like, do we continue down this road? Do we try and build something ourselves? Do we get out of Closure and use a tool that's actually written in Python or Ruby or something like that? So, yeah, it's, I think we, we kind of jumped to that very early. And we probably could have taken some more time to really uh, find out if that's really the way we should have done it. Um, mm-hmm. And as a result, we've been, you know, our deployment process is like always getting better you know and you know we've i mentioned this all the time that one of the things that palette provides us is the ability to deploy from a Repl, and that's really cool because you can we've got this uh, function that we call called deploy where we go deploy then we give it an environment name then we give it the data centers that we want to deploy to uh, and then we give it a um, basically a Predicate, which selects uh, which um, particular services you want to deploy, because you know we've got 20 services, we've got uh, two data centers, you know we've got uh, many environments, um, and so with this single uh, function called from a Repl, you can actually do your deploys, uh, and then you know get results on on how it went. So that's cool. You know, and, you know enabled us to do that, but uh, it's taken us a long time, kind of, to get there. And uh, building on top of that is is a little bit painful. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I I've, I've, I used Palette uh quite
0: a while ago but I haven't haven't really tracked it which is why I was able to bring jClouds Clouds to mine and I remember I remember thinking similar things to what you're saying around um it being quite an impressive effort um but I haven't I haven't really used it too much since then. Okay, so that's interesting. I, I want to turn if we can to uh talk a little bit about your presentation because I just watched it uh and I thought it was great. Um and again, I'll encourage anybody that hasn't seen it to check it out. It's on YouTube. It's from uh Closure West in 2015 and I think it's called The Closure at Scale. Is that Was that the title? That's it, yeah. yeah. So one of the cool things that you talked about was sort of towards the end in there where, where you said, okay, so you organize your system using component to break it apart into um, pieces that you describe with data structures, uh, typically records. And then one of the abilities that that gives you is the ability to say, okay, since I'm additionally specifying what, that, what, what your component interface really is is that it's the satisfaction of some protocol, right? So you have your – think you had your SMS service that you described. You said, okay, there's a service that describes what it means to send SMS. And then you have a record that um, kind of implements that protocol over whatever you know, SMS service you're using for real. But then you also introduced, when you test, the ability to provide an alternate implementation of that protocol. And there are other ways you could do it besides protocols, but they're a pretty nice way to do it that was implemented over a core async channel, which I thought was just great. I mean, and again, there are other ways you could do this too, but um, that just really struck me, and I've done similar stuff, and so I've found the similar advantages as, as being super cool. I, I And I, again, I think people should watch it, but um, for anybody that hasn't seen it or, or that saw it and can't remember it, maybe you could recap that because I think it's a key kind of superpower of the way that you set your system up.
1: Well, I guess I won't talk too much about Component, uh, I think you, you nailed kind of like the the guts of it there, but yeah, on testing. Um, so the way we used to do things, and I think this is both with and without component, is that we would you know provide an alternate uh, implementation for the purposes of testing, but then like you, you have this problem of if you're testing a side effect, um, which is really the hard thing to test, right? You know you've you got a pure function. Um, yeah, you know, we have this great one which takes in lines of text off a receipt and then spits out a map uh, with all the parsed information of it. And that is a pure function, and it's really easy to test. You know we have hundreds and hundreds of example uh, receipt lines that we pass into this function, and then we have the corresponding data structures that come out of it, and it's just using closure test is and it's really, really simple. But if you have to test a side effect, you know like sending an SMS, um, you know how do you do it without actually sending an SMS and making sure that to as much as possible, as far down the uh, the process of your code that your side effect did occur. So yeah, the way we used to do this was um, you call send SMS and the alternate implementation would save it in an Atom. You know, So you would be able to say send SMS uh, and then after running the test, you assert that the value inside the Atom is, for instance, the latest request that should have been sent. And this works if your code executes synchronously. But the second you have async code, you know whether it's using queues or core async channels or whatever, then you run into a problem where let's say we ha- we went further down the line and we wanted to test that uh, in our system, you know when a receipt is sent up from a store that we want to assert that a SMS is sent. Well, that's fine, but when you do that, it ha- has to go through many many queues and channels. So if that's the case and you run the test and then you assert the value of the atom then all of those asynchronous processes may not have completed yet. Um, so what do you do then? Well, you can deref every 10 milliseconds until a value exists, and then maybe time out after two minutes you can just... Trust that your system uh, operates fast enough that by the time you do tear it, it will work. Also which is known totally... as hope. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> until you uh, get another deployment machine, which is slower, and then all of a sudden, all of your tests break. You know. So these are all the things that we ran into as we were trying to figure out how to do this. And then, when core async was introduced, it was like, ah, of course, this is it. Now um, your side effects can be pushed onto a channel, and then you can inside the test block until. Um, the actual value on that channel is realized and then boom, there's your answer um, And you could do this with promises as well, um, you know under the old kind of uh, closure async style But um, putting on a channel and interrupting and it w- was great and more importantly if you do use something like a promise Then you can only put one value on mm-hmm. there. So let's say you want to assert that and you know, we do this a lot we, we want to um, test that particular log messages are omitted if in the case of uh, something going wrong you know, so um, if a service is down, um, one of our dependent services is down, then you know we want to re- assert that we return a 500 to our user, but we also want to assert that uh, something is logged in the correct way so that our monitoring kicks in and alerts us um, to the fact that that happened. And you may want to assert that, you know, three different log messages occur. So if you're using a promise, then you can't put, you know, for instance, three log messages onto a promise instead of putting them into logback. Um so instead what we do there is um you know we kind of hook in into the guts of our logging library and then just spit everything into a channel and now you can do really cool stuff like you know take four messages from the channel and assert that three of them have uh the correct log messages or you can block you know until a particular log message is emitted or and then time out after a second um if that didn't happen and then that's, that's the failing test scenario so it's just so uh you know, flexible, you know, and and this is what I, I really like about it is that we're just using core closure to do this. We're not using a particular mocking library where we would have to wait for a particular feature to be implemented by the library or to put in a pull request. Um, you know, it, it's, it's all core closure. So we can build any kind of test, you know, utils on top of that that we want to, and we can do anything. You know, we don't have to work around a library that doesn't do what we need to. We can just implement every single test style or utility that we want to on top of that infrastructure
0: yeah no it's it's really I, I i've done similar things and it's a really sophisticated uh well sophisticated in the sense of um capability but not particularly difficult to um to write or understand and you get so many benefits Look, the one that struck me when i was watching your talk was, was reminded me oh yeah right you can still have all your like regular thread pools in your test code right you spin up a thread pool and that's normally something that when you're writing unit tests you'd be like okay i can't really do that bit right now but i can still have like all these threads use netflix's what's the netflix library that Histrix. Uh, um, that- yeah exactly you could still use that um, and you can even do things on the inbound side right like if you're waiting for a message to arrive from some other network service well you can use channels whatever async mechanism it doesn't have to be channels although that's a pretty nice way to do it to, sim, uh, to simulate the messages um, arriving from external services, which is just a, just a very, very cool way to do it. And I think you made the point in your talk, it's super important. In fact, I remember you making this, is that you're not going to write a non-trivial system that does any kind of I.O., particularly network I.O., where it isn't async, right? Like I think we all, or not all, but many of us, and I'm guilty of this too, you know, reach for the synchronous libraries. But the truth is, is that those things just fall over, in know, in a lot of very
1: quickly in production type scenarios, um, often. Totally. Yeah, I think it's a point I didn't, I had a lot of things I wanted to talk about. This is <laughs> one of the things that I didn't get to. But it's the idea that I think, I mean, in a lot of languages, you reach for the sync, because that's all you have. And it's easier. But what I'm finding is that uh, in Clojure with core async, it's so much easier to write asynchronous code, you know, like the, the go the go block is just awesome um, and I guess you know collision didn't invent that but you know like the fact that we have it now um, is is great and so what I've been doing is really trying to use non-blocking libraries as much as possible and you know by default what we're doing these days is whenever there is any i/o anything at all um, probably not files like we probably still do files synchronously but anything that is you know outside of your machine uh, over the network we by default, we'll do it non-blocking, and uh, especially in, um, you know, like we did this with Cassandra. We had blocking versions uh, of all of our Cassandra code, but then at some point, we needed to do some some really crazy stuff. So we had to go and because Cassandra doesn't do very good um, joining. Um, you know, we have to do a lot of that ourselves. So we'd have to go and, for instance, get one particular index to a receipt get back the value of that and then use that to fan out and, and do five other queries to five other um, you know rows on the Cassandra database. And when we got those back, then we had to go and do another like 100 uh, requests somewhere else. And so, you know, pretty quickly we have like hundreds of concurrent requests for every incoming user request. And we just couldn't do that synchronously. But more importantly, it would be completely, uh, <laughs> I mean, it'd be both impractical because we wouldn't be able to have that many threads open um, but it would also be uh, really inflexible. Um, so with the core racing channels, we could do things like cool timeout on this particular one, but let the other four through and let give them two second timeouts or uh, you know on those hundred that come through, um, if only eighty of them come back, then that's totally fine. We can let the other twenty drop off. And if we were doing this you know I mean we could still do this in core racing using threads um, and the logic would still apply. but having it uh, completely async just gives us so much more flexibility there. Ordinarily, like, if you have to manage with callbacks and all this stuff, then like the overhead of managing uh, asynchronous operations is is hard enough that you could say that, look, we don't need it, therefore we're just going to go sync. But I think the big difference now is that you don't have to make that difference. You know, you can go async from the beginning with really none of the big downsides. And, you know, because Clojure actually runs on a JVM and... Uh core async operates on thread pools that can go across all of the cores on your system. you know it's not like you're stuck into some single core event loop you know and therefore you have to worry about the amount of time that it's gonna take uh for all of the concurrent requests to finish because uh, that's gonna slow everything down you know now you actually have all the cores and so you, you kinda get the best of both worlds. you can do non blocking async but uh you know all of your um you know cores can be used, which I don't know i I think that's awesome i I get yeah. I don't know why more people don't use
0: it. Well, and it's getting more awesome every year as the number of cores available, you know, tends to
1: go up. Totally, yeah. And I think that the one thing that I, I mentioned that you know, like, you don't really have to make that decision anymore because you know, core async is so easy to use. The one thing that we do still struggle with is just thread locals. You know, thread locals are really useful just as context. Mm-hmm. You know, request comes in, you've got a thread. Uh, if you want to log and make sure that um, a particular ID is logged on every message during the context of that request uh, which is hugely valuable for logging um, and you know figuring out uh, debugging scenarios in the future that's really hard to do without you know threads yeah and i know that uh you know pedestal has certainly tried to get around a lot of this by having you know passing that context everywhere Um, and we may start doing that in a lot of our code too but i think what i worry about at that point is that you you know if you're using component then every function or most functions in your system now take two arguments where they should have taken one, just because you have to now pass in the value of your state um, as a into that particular function. And now if you also have to kind of pass in a context of a user request, then you know, you get three arguments being passed into every function. And yeah, I I would love if someone could figure out that problem well and truly and kind of and that, that would mean that async, like there is no issue using async after that. But Anyway, thread locals are still a uh, I I think.
0: I yeah, hear you. I do. I wonder a little. I, and I've experienced the same thing. I, I sometimes wonder, you know, there's just a sort of inherent amount of um, complexity in async. Because like you say, core async does a lot to tame it, but it can't. If there is a certain kind of irreducible complexity, which I it seems reasonable that there is, then, you know, at some point you've got to pay that price. But maybe somebody can figure out how to at least amortize it. Yeah. Yeah, I'm right there with you, man. Well, well, listen, I've kept you almost an hour. Um, I don't want to close the conversation here. Um, if there's anything else that 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 you want to talk about today, but uh, we probably should start to wrap it up so that we can both go back to because I'm actually working uh, for Walmart as well. We should both go back to making making Walmart some money. Um, <laughs> but uh, but is, was there anything else that you wanted to? It was a great set of things. Was there anything else you else you wanted to mention while we uh, while we're here together?
1: Let's see. I guess just like a, a a personal thing that I've been seeing uh, that I I'm well like one thing that we're doing uh, in a, one of our teams here in Walmart is trying to use I guess how do I explain this? All right, so I guess the, there's a problem with uh, protocols as interfaces, and it's a pretty small problem, but it's one that uh, I've noticed uh, kind of you know has gets bigger as time goes on, uh, and this is that a if you have for instance a production implementation of an interface you know, via a protocol, and then you have uh, a test implementation. And let's say that you want to split those uh, across libraries. Then now you have a production library, you have test implementation library, but they still all in, uh, implement a particular interface. So where do you put that protocol? Well, you have to put that protocol into another um, library because they both have to depend on it. And I think one of the reasons that we have a lot of libraries in our system is is partly because of this. You know, we we have dependencies on dependencies and it's because everything has to statically compile. One thing that we've been playing with recently is the idea of having a, uh, a channel as your interface. Um, mm-hmm. So this is mostly for side affecting protocols. So uh, SMS is a really good example. You know, you need to basically send a particular message to a phone number and uh you know and once that's done um you don't care like it's a side effect so if you can go and if you put it on a protocol then that's fine you know it, it's very inherent in the code what's happening you're calling the send method on a protocol but that does mean that you have this problem of depending on another library what we've been doing is instead of using a protocol we've just been having a channel you know instead of uh calling the protocol you just put the a map which has like you know the message and the phone number Onto a channel and then you you fire that through, and I think this is awesome because one, if there's one thing that we have really learned over and over again, it's like you don't want too many dependencies in your application to so the point where you know we're trying to we're really trying to get rid of our classic utility library, you know the one that every <laughs> kind of company has. Sure. Um, yeah, we're truly really trying to boil that down and to the point where if hey there's this function like I think we added you know in uh, is a is a classic uh-huh. one that a lot of uh, companies add. Um, yeah, that's in our util library. But now, if it's used in like less than five places in our code base, we will duplicate it. Yeah. You know, we'll actually just copy it into the top of the namespace and duplicate it everywhere, because let's face it, that function's probably not going to change. Mm-hmm. And I can't remember, I can't remember who you had on Cognicast recently, but they were talking about this exact problem and that there's got to be a way to, um, you know, have a uh, depend on functions, uh, not on libraries. Uh, and if you could create a really good system for doing this. That would probably solve a lot of these problems too but anyway uh, yeah if we don't have that if we don't have a way to just kind of like you know pull in a function like we pull in a library uh, with a much lower overhead then i think something like core racing channels uh, have a lot of other benefits too but yeah you just instead of calling a protocol you just you know put something on a channel if you need to be notified that it went through successfully then you can put uh, a map and a channel on the channel <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, to get a result back. Yep. And um, you know, we're, we're starting to, I think there's a lot of code that you need to write around this to make it not, like, there's a lot of edge cases you need to take into account and, uh, and so on. But once you've done that, I, I think it works really well. The one problem with it is that uh, code documentation suffers a little bit you know so you have in a protocol it's very obvious you can look at the doc string on the protocol to figure out what it's doing if you're putting something on a channel it's like well how do i really know what that channel does and where did i get it from and you know so i think that's an unsolved problem there that we need to figure out but anyway it's it's something that we've been doing recently and uh i'm certainly a big fan of it yeah it's kind of cool
0: yeah that is cool i've I've actually uh once again done something fairly similar we had a image processing library that i wrote and the It wasn't quite the same. We had components that essentially consisted of a thread pool and a channel, uh, and it made it very easy to to decouple the steps in this image processing pipeline and swap out. You know, uh, just here's a channel that feeds something else, and it worked really well. So I'm right there with you.
1: Exactly. Yeah, for testing, it's. I mean, it. It it kind of. It's really even easier than the the, the protocol, like we talked about with the component testing. Yep. it's just a channel. It's it's like the lowest level I can think of yeah. for uh, for kind of telling something that you want something done. Yeah,
0: well, very cool. I'm glad you brought that up. Was it, uh, there anything else you wanted to talk about? Um, we can save uh, it for next time. I'd love to have you back on again.
1: Yeah, sure. Okay. Um, yeah, it's nothing that uh, jumps to mind. But uh, yeah, cool.
0: Cool. Well, this has been absolutely great. I really really enjoyed the conversation. Um, you're doing. It's it's always interesting to me to talk to our our customers. Um, you know, for a bunch of reasons. One is it's just really cool to hear about how anybody's using our stuff, but you know, it's just nice to to reach out and say, hey, you know, uh, how's it been, how's it been going, you know, working with Cognitech. And so it's cool to hear your experience there, and also to hear about the uh, the neat ways that you've been um, applying closure. But uh, but we, like I said, we'll have, we'll have to save more discussions for another time, because it certainly sounds like you are continuing to refine your approach and, and build more cool stuff. Um, but before we go uh, there is another question that I need to ask you uh, the question that we always end the show with to our guests uh, which is to ask our guests to provide a piece of advice that they've that they like for whatever reason some advice they've been given or that they like to give other people or whatever so uh, again I know that you were forewarned on this one so I, I think you had a chance to think of something what would you like to share with us <laughs> I
1: think I was forewarned but I didn't really put much thought into it <laughs> so let's see I think um I think uh, I've, I've Spent a bit of time in the startup community and i think uh, a lot of people what i've seen in the closure community are also uh in there and it, it's a it's a classic bit of advice but it's one that really uh, struck home with me and that's that when you if you're doing a startup a lot of people worry about being stealthy about it mm. you know they say "Ah, oh, i'm i'm working on this really cool thing and and you know like they tell it to their friends and their friends are like oh you know what is it what's your idea and they're like oh well it's stealth i, I can't tell you and this really, I don't know, gives me the shits a bit. Because um, <laughs> <laughs> I think, you know, unless you're... It, it's very rare that what you're doing is so defendable that if someone else got the same idea... That they could also uh, do it once they heard about it, because uh, if you look at startups, um, it's really not about your idea; it's about um, how you go about um, actually implementing it, and how fast you can get to market, and how well you know you talk to your customers and how happy they are. It's very rarely, I um, mean, you know, if you've got an idea for a, you know, Facebook for dogs or something, um, it's not, you know, it's not going to solve the world, and it's it's not actually that amazing an idea. So very rarely is is stealth um, kind of required. And the the really great thing about not being stealthy when you're doing a startup is purely that if you talk about it to your friends, you know, uh, they will give you feedback and they will tell you uh, you're an idiot, you know, like (laughs) that's (laughs) how could you possibly hope to do that? And maybe they're right, maybe they're not. But it's all, you know, information that comes into you. But the really big one is that the more you talk about it, the more likely you are to do it. Mm. Um, you know you can sit there all night you know thinking about great ways to provide x service to the world using closure and you know you get you know stuck in the weeds and it's like awesome like this is going to be amazing and then it's like ah but i've got to quit my job and i've got to go and make all this happen and that that's all, eh, maybe not yet you know <laughs> but the, talk about it the more your friends will will be like you know if they do like it they'll be like dude this is awesome like you should do it and hey I'm looking at doing a company too and there's this friend of mine over here who's really knowledgeable in this area like he would have some great advice and he might even want to join you as a co-founder and like basically the benefits of being open and talking about it uh, far outweigh um being stealthy about something so yeah not really generally applicable to closure or anything but um it's something that uh, i certainly took to heart um when i was doing my startup and uh I'd encourage everyone to, to talk about their ideas.
0: No, I think that's great. I think that's great general advice. I think you could easily broaden that past uh, just startups into, into lots of areas of life. I mean, the one, the latter half of that you mentioned, if you say it out loud, right, like you will tend to hold yourself to it just by virtue of having shared it, I think by itself is a super useful piece of advice. So um, anyway, thanks a ton for that. And, and thanks a ton for taking the time today to come on. I know you're really busy. You know, you're running the team there, doing good work. Uh, but it was great that you were able to come on and then share your experience with our listeners. So thanks a lot for coming on. Oh, cheers. Appreciate it. Yeah. We were glad to have you. So, all right, well, we'll close it down there. This has been the Cognicast. You have been listening to the Cognicast. The CogniCast is a production of CogniTech Inc., whom you can find on the web at CogniTech.com and on Twitter at CogniTech. You can subscribe to the CogniCast, listen to past episodes, and view cover art and show notes at our home on the web, CogniTech.com slash podcast. You can contact us by tweeting at CogniCast or by emailing us at podcast at CogniTech.com. Our guest today was Anthony Markar on Twitter at MooCar, M-O-O-C-A-R. Episode cover art is by Michael Parenteau. Audio production by Russ Olson. The Cognacast is produced by Kim Foster. Our theme music is Thumbs Up for Rock and Roll by Kill the Noise with Feed Me. I'm your host, Craig Andera. Thanks for listening.